Why don't you grab your Bible, turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 39. On Sunday morning and Saturday night, we sort of dipped our toe in the, uh, the section of Jeremiah that is pretty dark, pretty bleak, because this is where the rubber meets the road. This is when it came time to face the music. Um, that term, face the music, uh, um, it's, there's a rise of a story of a person who desperately wanted to be in the um, you know, symphony orchestra there in their community, but didn't know how to play an instrument. But he, this guy was really wealthy and he, and he donated a lot of money to the local symphony. And so he kind of said, you know, he kind of made a, a thing, you know, that, uh, you know, if you want to keep having my donations to the symphony, you're going to let me be in the, in the band. And so the conductor, knowing that he was donating so much money, said, okay, here's a flute, just act like you're playing it. Uh, and you can sit like, you know, whatever, fifth chair flute. And, but just don't, whatever you do, don't make a noise. So the orchestra would play, and, and for several years, man, the, the, the guy was, it was, you know, up there just acting like a flautist, you know, just playing along, and, and uh, <laughs> it was great until a new conductor came. And the new conductor was conducting in re rehearsal and was listening for all the people's parts in the orchestra, but he couldn't hear the, you know, the flute, the sixth chair, and he's like, wait a minute, stop everybody. What are you playing? And the guy suddenly, you know, realizes he's, he's on the spot. He says, I'm just, just playing my part, you know, sir. And uh, well, let me hear you play your part. And that's when he had to face the music. That's where that term came from, facing the music. <laughs> uh, you know, you could pull it off for a while, but eventually it's gonna catch up to you. And the Bible even says this so much, you know, be sure of this, your sin will find you out. The Lord says, you know, things in his word that when he says them, they're, gonna, they're as good as done. Uh, and he, he may be patient, and he may be long-suffering to us, but his will will still be accomplished. And that was the problem. In Jeremiah's day, as we've been kind of, you know, meditating on these scriptures in the last few weeks, the thing that really strikes me is this thing where the Lord said, here's what's gonna go down. And for 40 years, Jeremiah was telling them with precision how the Babylonians with the Chaldean army would come and wipe out Jerusalem and they'd all be in real trouble. But like we talked about last week, some people, well, they were in denial, other were delusional. Some people thought that there was a delay. Remember, we looked at that last week. But finally, it came time for them to face the music. And this is one of the most horrific stories in the Bible. In fact, the date of this is mentioned four different times in the Bible. This, this, this very date when the walls of Jerusalem were crushed by the Babylonians there in 586 B.C., and this is an important date for us to know because it's a reminder to us that God's word always comes to pass. Even when it seems like it's been a really long time since he said something about it or that his word is saying it's going to happen, we can think it's way off in the future. And I wonder if, are we a church in the greater church of the, of the world really, in the United States as well, but where we are like, ah, yeah, the rapture of the church, rapture, schmapture, and, you know, and all this prophecy, schmophecy, uh, you know, that, there's kind of an attitude in the church today. Um, when it's amazing to me that so many people and Christians just are kind of like, you know, diminishing how important prophecy really is. When, when Jesus told us over and over and over again, watch and be ready. You know, be prepared and, and don't, don't be, uh, you know, like the wicked servants. Ah, the Lord delays is coming. It's not gonna happen for a long, long time. And 
And the Lord says, at an hour when you think not, that's when it's all gonna come down. So as the people were caught unaware and off guard, even though Jeremiah had been faithfully warning the people, they still got caught on their heels and finally the Babylonians come. You know, it's an amazing thing. Even when all the signs of Jeremiah's prophecies about the Babylonians coming, even when all the signs were as clear as a bell, uh, do you think it's time? The Babylonians have circumferenced our city. They've wiped out all the other nations around us. We're the only ones left. Do you think we're in trouble? You know, when did they say, well, you know, Jeremiah was really right about that. You know what's sad about this is, I don't know that they ever really acknowledged that Jeremiah was right, even after the fact. Remember when Zedekiah said, hey, Jeremiah, what's the Lord saying now? And Jeremiah's like, well, you're gonna die, but uh, why are you doing, like, why are you even asking me? Why did you throw me in prison? You know, Jeremiah was just sort of baffled by everybody's disregard to the word that he was sharing. The reason that's important, I think, today is because I think we have the same attitude. While the signs around us in the world are buzzing ferociously, what's that? Oh man, any thousands of, whenever I do a prophecy update, which we have one coming up here this, this week, uh, this Friday night, whenever I do a prophecy update, the hardest part is figuring out how to zone in or tune into one or be kind of specific on topics. It's so tempting just to shotgun da, 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 and shoot and, and just kind of give you all the stuff and, and take four, four or five hours to do it. But, but uh, I, you guys are smart. You see what's going on in the world. But, um, but the thing is, there's just so much that lines up so perfectly with God's word. Uh, and, and I think we are perhaps in those days, like if you could compare with the Jews when we started seeing the Jews surrounded by the Babylonians um, and we saw them starting to see the, pain and suffering and starvation and disease. And Nebuchadnezzar was breathing down their necks and it would just be a short season before he'd crush the walls, crush the temple and take the people either dead or in captivity. Right there, they were just right there wondering, is, it, is, this, is this what's gonna happen? Is this what's happening? And I feel like the world is kind of at that precipice right now. Uh, the mark of the beast, buying and selling without any money or cash. Man, you can go to Taco Bell and not even use cash anymore. Have you seen that? All the signs, by the way, all the signs you see that we don't have change, so please you know, don't use cash. And, and um, I've been asking, I've got an informal poll going of different stores and stuff that have that sign up. We don't have the cash. As it turns out, they always do. Ask them, do you guys have all the change and stuff that you need? Oh yeah, we do. Well, why is the sign up there? I don't know, management did that. We, all, we always have enough change. Like that's what they all say. It's kind of an interesting thing. So where is this whole, you know, phasing out of cash? You know, a lot of times you can go to your doctor now, they won't take cash anymore. You have to use a card or, you know, use the mark of the beast or something. But no, I don't, we, we don't use that yet. But that, that's coming, man. That's coming. The, the mark of the beast, the cashless society, the new world order, uh, one world government, man, you can see the handwriting on the wall. You can see globalism, you can see a religious ecumenicalism and uh, uh, you know, there's kind of a push with the Pope and, and others and even Islam, there's, there's sections of Islam of all things that are starting to sort of meld together. You know, it's the real liberal, not the fundamentalist Muslim, but the kind of the um, non-fundamentalist, uh, open-minded ecumenical kind of thing where you see the Pope and the Muslims and different people starting to talk and, and uh, you know, embracing that great religion, you know, they call it Islam. Uh, we were doing that. Uh, I remember when George Bush said, we're, we're just so blessed by that great religion, Islam. We're gonna celebrate Ramadan, you know, in the White House. And, and, and you know, that was a disappointing thing. 
Because that's syncretism, you know, that's you know, this ecumenicalism where it's all one God, Allah and Jehovah, but that's all signs of the times. The Bible says that's what happened in the last days. So uh, we're seeing that. We're seeing Israel prosper and become a mighty nation uh, every single day. They, they're on the news and the world generally hates Israel except for the United States. Um, that's what the Bible said would be in the last days, just like what we're seeing right now. So many things that were impossible when the Bible wrote of these things. You know, when you, when you think of, you know, the Jews being scattered all over the world. No wonder Martin Luther and people 500 years ago thought, well, we can't be talking about Israel and we can't be talking about the Jews. So they concluded God is done with the Jews and the church of Jesus Christ has replaced the Jews. And that's where replacement theology came in because they said there's no way there's a real Israel. So, because uh, they've been scattered for, you know, Martin Luther's day, 1500 years. They've lost their language. Hebrew is not spoken by anyone in the world anymore. Um, and they're scattered in New York and places of Russia and even in the Middle East. And, and they're, but they're not in Israel and they're not in Jerusalem. And so that's where people said, well, that, that prophecy is not literal. We shouldn't take that literally. And so it's the church that's replaced Israel. But then the Bible says the Lord would in the last days regather his people and they'd go back to the land of Israel and they would re, you know, use their Hebrew tongue and that they would become a mighty nation in the last days. And so on, you know, May 14th, 1948, all those people that believed that the church replaced Israel should have changed their notes and said, oops, we can take this literally because the Bible says there's a literal Israel and it's gonna be powerful, but it's gonna be hated by the nations and there's gonna be wars against Israel. We've just seen that and people should have realized, wow, we can go back to taking the Bible literally as we should have all along. It's an interesting thing. So we have thousands of signs of the times and, and you know, there Paul said, the Lord's coming and, and to some people he's gonna come like a thief in the night. Nobody's even gonna know he's there. But for us, children of the light, it says we will not be taken as a thief, but we are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What a glorious story. And what a great thing you and I as Christians have to look forward to, even though we very well could be living in the last days, you and I have much to be happy about. In Jeremiah's story, there's a parallel here. And this is one of those, you know, stories that should teach us a New Testament truth, an Old Testament story teaching a New Testament truth. That's the same thing with Jeremiah. And the truth is, um, this is a very dire warning to us, I think, the book of Jeremiah not to fall into that trap of thinking, ah, the Lord's delaying is coming, or we're in denial that it's even gonna happen, whatever that is, let's learn from these people. And now, this is where they face the music, this is where the Babylonians crush, finally, Jerusalem. Well, it says in verse one of chapter 39, in the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, the 10th month came, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army against Jerusalem, and they besieged it. And in the 11th year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, the ninth day of the month, the city was broken up. And all the princes of the king of Babylon came in and sat in the middle gate, even near Galshazer, Shamgar Nebo, Sarshikim, Rab Saris, near Galshazer, and Rabmag, with all the residue of the princes of the king of Babylon. So you automatically notice that the, the Babylonians besieged Jerusalem. And for those of you that aren't really familiar with tactical plans of biblical days, 
um, the, the, you know, the conquering nation would come and they would just surround the city so no one could come or go. And then they would just starve the people out of the city. Now, when you go to Jerusalem today, you can see how small the old city is. In fact, you know, the one you see today, uh, when you see those ancient walls around Jerusalem, the old city, um, they're really not that ancient in, in, in terms of Israeli stuff. When you see the walls of Jerusalem, what you actually see is the Ottoman Turk era walls that are only about 500 years old. Uh, still cool, and it's still, you realize, man, we're, we're not in Kansas anymore. When you go to Jerusalem, you realize, yeah, this is different. Um, but those walls are fairly new and you have to go down to like the Western wall. You know how tall the Western Wailing Wall is? That's because, uh, you know, century upon century, they built up on the wall and built it higher and higher and then the Ottoman era is way up at the top and, then it get, and the stones get bigger and bigger as you get down on the Western wall. And that's why the Jews are down there wailing at those bigger stones at the bottom and sticking their prayers in the cracks of the Western wall. Because those stones are from the ancient times and some of them you know, go down to more of a Solomon era uh, or first temple period era. And if you go down further in the rabbi's tunnel, you can go all the way down to the Solomon era temple. And it's really quite a thing to see. Um, it makes you realize how you know, 2,000, 3,000 years, um, you know, the soil builds up and, and it just civilization just kind of sinks in the dust after thousands and thousands of years. And it's an amazing thing to see. It's hard for us to even get our brains around it as Oregonians because the oldest thing here is like in, the, in Oregon is like 18, you know, 20 something or whatever, like the oldest thing we can find uh, archeologically. Like we, you know, except for Indians were here before us, but they didn't have a lot of buildings and rock structures and stuff. So we just don't have archeological stuff really in the same way in Israel, it's everywhere. And when you're walking on a street of Jerusalem, if you get out a shovel and you were to dig, you'd find the next civilization and pottery and coins. And if you dig down another 10 feet, it's another era or whatever. And you go down and there's, there's many strata. When you go to uh, Mount um, Megiddo, where we like to go and visit, what overlooks the Valley of Armageddon, but it was the, the, you know, the stronghold of Megiddo. And there are eight civilizations that are piled upon another on Megiddo. And you can go to the various levels of that dig and see the Solomon era and the Josiah era. By the way, Josiah was killed at Megiddo, the king. So there's all kinds of things that you just see, wow, civilization upon civilization. That's, that's why the Bible land is so interesting to see. But this would be one of those strata uh, and maybe one of the most important. And I say it's the most important because once Jerusalem would be crushed here by the Babylonians, there would be a whole new, you know, Jerusalem would be leveled. So when we read Ezra and Nehemiah, remember how they came from Babylon and they went to restore Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, they all came and rebuilt the wall and restored the, te built the temple. Um, but do you remember what they built the wall out of there in Jerusalem at that time? Anybody? Rubble. It's, it's one of my favorite things to show people. Sometimes I'll take people off on a side tour when everybody's getting pizza in Jerusalem. We'll, I'll say, you guys wanna see something cool? And so some people come over and we'll, we'll go and there's this little section in Jerusalem where there's all these buildings and there's this sort of triangle opening and it opens up to the sky and, and then there's this pit. And down in the pit, there's, there's kind of this interesting thing. And, you're like, and then there's a bunch of Coke bottles and trash down there. But you look down in this pit, you're like, what is that? And you might just think it's a garbage dump but it's actually there and there's a little plaque that says, this is Nehemiah's wall, which is hilarious. Cause you look at the walls of Jerusalem, all the walls are impressive and beautiful and majestic, but Nehemiah's wall, garbage. 
Why? Because remember they had to build the wall with a sword in the trial. They were being attacked on every side. They were just kind of throwing rocks and trying to pile up a wall. But the Lord used that wall. Remember the Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah era temple that they built? As they put the foundation in and started raising up the temple, do you remember the way it was? The old men who could remember the old temple were weeping and crying, oh, it's not like the good old days. And the young people were shouting with praise because the temple was being rebuilt. But they said, the old guys were like, it's not like the old temple, but the young people were like, yeah, but it's a temple and we have a temple now, yay. And, and, and there's, there's these strata in Jerusalem, year after year, century after century of, of you know, civilization that was crushed and then rebuilt. But this might just be one of the most important. I'd say this one here in 586 BC when the, the Babylonians crushed Jerusalem and leave it in just a pile of rocks. Um, 586 BC, probably the second or equally probably important is AD 70 when the Romans came and crushed Jerusalem again. Um, and, uh, and, and the reason that's important is because these are big markers uh, that fulfilled Bible prophecy that the Lord predicted for the Jews. Now, um, notice the besieging here, what they would do is they would starve the people out. And the Jews were here, it says in verse one, the ninth year of Zedekiah um, in the 10th month. And then in verse two, the 11th year of Zedekiah in the fourth month. So that's how long it was. It was a couple years that they would be besieged and starved out of Jerusalem. And it was a horrible, like, like the, the book of Jeremiah doesn't really describe the horrible situation as well as some of the other books um, about you know, the women eating their children and things like that. Like there's cannibalism and just trying to survive this besieging. It, it got to be horrible. And, and by the time the Babylonians crushed the walls of Jerusalem, the Jews were walking skeletons. They were starving and, and it was a bad, bad scene. There was disease. So even when they got there, they weren't really fight worthy. And that's the way the Babylonians did it. Just surround them for a couple years, keep an army out there, don't let anybody come and go. And eventually you're gonna get in there and be able to just kill everyone or make slaves of them all. That was the tactic, that was the way. So that's why in verse three, these princes come marching in in their regal you know, clothing with the fancy, fancy names uh, as they march in and people are just taken and they're wiped out easily. The Jews would be easily wiped out by the Babylonians here. Now, um, in, in, in this chapter, um, we see three sections. What happened to the Jews, number one. What happened to Jeremiah, number two. And in this chapter, finally, we see what happened to Eved Malach. Remember him? We'll talk about him again one more time, um, which I really love that guy, Eved Malach. Uh, but um, in this first one, we see what happens to the Jews. Before we move on to verse four, though, of the names there, there's one that is interesting to me. Does anybody know, where do you suppose the wise men from the East came from? Anybody? Babylon, they were, they were sort of a Chaldean bunch. They were called the Magi. Remember that in the biblical narrative of the, of the uh, nativity of Jesus? Who were these Magi? Um, you know, and, and we, with our Bing and Andy Williams and, you know, Nat King Cole, we kind of have these little Christmassy pictures of who the three kings were, even though there weren't three. There might've been 300, who knows? But, um, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us the number, but there were wise men that did come from the East and they knew more about the coming of the Messiah than the Jews did. Isn't that an amazing thing? Like these guys came from hundreds and hundreds of miles away on that night in Bethlehem and they were looking for the star and they knew to look for it and they were looking for the Messiah of the Jews. Where in the world did those dudes come from and, and how did they know anything about that? Well, we don't know for sure. 
But I do have a hunch. It could have even started as early as Jeremiah's ministry. And I'll tell you that because of of one of the names here. And and you could look it up if you want to, but there's a name here that is linked to the Magi. Some scholars argue that this might've been one of the first of that group because his name is either a title and he's part of this group or his name means that he was the beginning of the group of, that was known as the Magi. And his name, Rabmag, right there in the list of these dudes, Rabmag. Um, so Rabmag, if you look it up, his name is equivalent to the Magi uh, that came from the East, uh, these wise men. Uh, so some scholars say that Rabmag would have been the father of these wise men. Others say, no, he had, this is more of a title and he was one of the wise men. Either way, could it be that somewhere along the way, Jeremiah and Ragmag crossed paths and Jeremiah sat and told him about what was gonna happen. Told him about some of the prophecies of Isaiah or some of the prophecies of the Bible about the Messiah who had come to save the world of its sins. Um, there were wise men that knew more about it than the Jews in Jerusalem. So the, the wise men came there to you know, uh, see Herod, King Herod the Great, and said, where is this, you know, and, uh, and what, what town is it supposed to be in? And, and the Jews were like, yeah, somewhere in Bethlehem or something, we don't know, whatever. And they didn't even go get off their duff and go see their Messiah that was foretold. They just didn't even care or think to know about it, but these Babylonian guys did and they came and they were only one of the only ones who came to see Jesus, the Messiah. This is an interesting thing. So could it have been Jeremiah at this point that somehow crossed paths with Rabmag and told him about, the prophecies of a Messiah? Could it have been later? Because if you recall, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel were taken also as, you know, captivity in Babylon. And could it be that Rabmag went back home and, and learned from Daniel about the prophecies? And Daniel's got some great prophecies about the world, but also the Messiah. Could it have been that they crossed paths with these Jews that would have been dragged off into Babylonian captivity? But isn't it something? I guess the reason I I harp on this point is you and I might think that we're living in Babylon today. And uh, you know, we Portlanders, we kind of do feel like Portland's becoming more and more like Babylon, godless and and kind of a worldly place and they don't really know God and uh, nobody cares about God. But isn't it something that somewhere along the way, some seeds were planted in some Babylonians that started to bring forth amazing fruit where these magi from the East came to see Jesus, the Messiah. And uh, I, I think that that, that's, that gives me hope. Could it be that you and I are the Jeremiah or the Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's living in Babylon, you know, figuratively, uh, and, and our job is just to point people to Jesus because who knows what kind of fruit that might bring, even in a godless place like Portland, Oregon. Um, that's what our calling is, going to all the world. And you know, Africa, I, I, I've been to Africa quite a few times. I'm not sure they need Jesus any more than Portland. If you wanna be a missionary, be a missionary in Portland, Oregon. Um, we're the, one of the most post-Christian cultures maybe in the world, and we have work to do here. Um, but I love this, you know, Rab Mag is, if you look him up, some argue that he was the first of the Magi. That's kind of an interesting, just freebie there for you. Well, uh, so four times in the Bible, uh, by the way, this date, the 11th year of Zedekiah, the fourth month, the ninth day of the month, um, and we know it was 586 BC. 
Um, this was mentioned, if you want to jot it in your notes, it was mentioned in chapter 52 of Jeremiah later on. Uh, by the way, chapter 52 of Jeremiah is kind of an interesting chapter. It's a, an appendix or an additional section that was added later. And, um, but it includes this date. Second Kings chapter 25 talks about this date. And Second Chronicles 36 mentions this date as well. Uh, and then right here. So those are the four places that that date is emphasized. And, and I, I'm, there's very few dates that are as emphasized in the Bible as the crushing of Jerusalem uh, by Babylon. Why is that important? It's an exclamation point to me. The Lord wants us to see this crushing of Jerusalem, not just for morbidity. Oh, that's horrible and it's a horrible story. No, it's so that we can learn for instruction to not have the mindset of the Jews saying, yeah, whatever, this is not gonna happen. So it's a good word of warning. Well, verse four came to pass that when Zedekiah, the king of Judah, saw them and all the men of war, that they fled and went forth out of the city by night, by the way of the king's garden, by the gate <clears throat> betwixt the two walls. And he went out the way of the plain. You know, it's interesting because here you almost wonder, Zedekiah, did he have hope? Hey, let's sneak out. Hey, we made it through the garden secret entrance between the walls. And they got outside of the walls unnoticed by the are we gonna get away with it? We're gonna talk about that tonight because there's gonna be some people that seemingly get away with it without the Lord's word coming completely true. Uh, but be sure of this, the Lord's word is true. So Zedekiah is sneaking away thinking he's gonna escape and it looks as if he's gonna escape. I wonder if he thought, ha ha, Jeremiah, look at me now. I'm outside of the city and I'm running and I'm free. But verse five, the Chaldean army pursued after them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon to Riblah, in the land of Hamath, where he gave judgment upon him. Then the king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah in Riblah before his eyes. Also the king of Babylon slew all the nobles of Judah. Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with chains to carry him to Babylon. Um, so this is, this is it. This is where, you know, Zedekiah gets what Jeremiah was foretelling for years. Now, historically, there's an interesting thing about uh, the Babylonian psychology of warfare and conquest. Um, the Babylonians were not alone in this, but they are the ones who really perfected the art of what do you do with a conquered people? Um, and this is something at this time, I think it's important to kind of show you and tell you a little bit about the, the way Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians did it. Because remember, if you conquered a people and the Babylonians conquered just about everybody, the only people that were left are the Egyptians who are still sort of um, on their own. Uh, but the Babylonians pretty much conquered everybody else. When you conquer a people group in Bible times, what do you do with them? Well, the Babylonians would kill probably most of them, brutally. Um, then after conquering them, what do you do with all the people that are left? Well, you slay all, a lot of the people that are in charge. And you also slay the most powerful and the most wealthy. So that everybody else that's living are watching with their eyes, wow, did you see what just happened? And not only that, would they do it in such a brutal way that it would make the people just think, I can't believe what a barbaric king. So, so Nebuchadnezzar, his, history tells us that Nebuchadnezzar was probably the one who literally poked out Zedekiah's eyes. Who's the king? 
Zedekiah's over here. And, and Nebuchadnezzar probably walked up to him and poked out Zedekiah's eyes himself. And this was all part of the psychology of the whole thing. Um, it wasn't like poke out his eyes. No, he would go and do it. And, and he would often do it where everybody could see him do it. And this would put a horrible level of fear. Did you guys just see what he did to our king? What's he gonna do to us? As the people that are still alive would watch. And did you see what he did to all the Zedekiah's, the king's sons? And it really put fear in the people. Then, then, this is where it gets a little more psychological. Nebuchadnezzar would turn around with a gracious face and say, now, that that's taken care of. Your rebellious king who got you in all kinds of trouble, he's the one who caused you guys all the trouble. Now you can follow me. I will lead you and I will care for you. And I'm gonna give you every opportunity for success. And suddenly, you know, it's, you hear about this, uh, you know, psychological time of people who are in, you know, captivity, like prisoners of war, having sort of weird relationships with some of their captives people. And, and that's something that's really true. The Babylonians would tap into that. So they'd get their, their people and sort of suddenly be, now we'll take care of you. And, and this is what would happen. We'll see this kind of shake out. I'm telling you this because this is what he's gonna do here. Um, but it was the powerful, the wealthy, the kings, the rulers, kill them. Um, now, because of that, some of the rulers historically were known to sort of unrule themselves. I'm just a lowly peasant. You know, and they'd, they'd put on normal clothes instead of their regal clothing. And they'd sort of try to blend in with the rest of the crowd. We're gonna see that too. And the reason they would do that is if the Babylonians suspected that they were you know, a, a county commissioner or a, a mayor of a city or something like that, uh, well, kill them, kill them all. But then if you're just a peasant, if you're poor, if you're homeless, you're exactly the people we're looking for. These people have treated you badly. They led you into this you know, horrible battle that we had to come and clean up. And now you're on our side. So there's this wooing. And the reason I, I point that out is many, but, but one reason is that's the way the enemy works. Satan, be not ignorant of Satan's devices. But Satan, you know, you can see his horrible things, but, but I think people are wooed by Satan all the time. And it, and it never sounds horrible. I'm, I'm not as worried about Satan in his bad form, you know, um, because most people go, yeah, that's pretty evil. That's evil. You know, when we see just evil stuff in the world, we go, man, that's Satan, that's evil. That's not the stuff that scares me. By the way, like, like, let me just give you something. Some of you will disagree with me on this, and that's fine if you want to disagree. But when the Christians got all up in arms about Harry Potter, Harry Potter books, burn them because they're evil. And Christians got all up into that. I understand why they got into that, but it, it just, it number one draws attention to the books. Everybody's, what's in those books? Let's read them. Not only that, we have this funny double standard in Christianity where we love Lord of the Rings, but we don't like Harry Potter. <laughs> they both have wizards, they both have demonic evil and all this, it's just funny. Now, um, so we've got this weird standard, but I'm not worried about Harry Potter, honestly. I really am not. I don't, I don't know anybody personally. There might be some people out there. I don't know anybody personally who has said, you know, I love Harry Potter, so I'm going to be a wizard or a witch. Um, I, I don't know, I'm, there might be people out there, but it's a very low percentage of people who actually have become witches and wizards because of Harry Potter. But here's what I am worried about is the, the turning of Satan from <laughs> evil to you're a good person. People like you. You know, you, you, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and you can do it on your own. You don't need God. That's what he did with Eve. 
oh, God's not right. If you want to be enlightened and be like God. See, it's this whisper that sounds so good. I, I, I tell the story often, but I, I'll never forget the interview of the, the, back in the uh, late 80s, I think, or early 90s. There was this big death metal, speed metal movement. And uh, this Christian band, what was it called? Vengeance. Now, maybe some of you remember Vengeance. Does anybody remember the band Vengeance? Raise your hand. Oh, you were a headbanger then, probably back in those. <laughs> we're all old now. Um, but this guy, Vengeance, uh, th- th- he was being interviewed by Christianity Today, and they, and they were saying, you know, I forget his name, Bob, I think was his name, Bob Beeman. Um, they said, Bob, you know, you sound like Satan. Like when you sing, how do you, how do you address that with Christians? You sound just like Satan. And Bob looked, and, and I thought, man, his answer was brilliant. He says, you know, Satan doesn't sound like that. Satan sounds like this. You're a good person. And I was like, wow, that's so, so true. He's an angel of light, the Bible says. You know, the whole, you know, Satan talking like this all the time. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's Harry Potter. <laughs> but Satan is an angel of light and there's something that's luring, uh, you know, people to him. And, and, uh, and, and that's like Nebuchadnezzar. He, he, he is evil, no question, in this story. And, and he slays all these people, a bloody, poking out the eyes of his eyes, horrible, horrible stuff. Slaying his sons in front of his eyes, poking out his eyes. But then the way he turns to these people and says, now you're gonna serve me. And you, you, we'll take good care of you guys. This is the way of the enemy that we have, Satan. And he overpromises and never delivers. That's Satan. Uh, don't, don't be duped. Um, I think that, you know, Satan speaks in things like, you know, that, um, uh, things like tolerance and diversity. Things like, you know, acceptance and like, it just sounds so beautiful rolling off your tongue, but Satan's using those seemingly beautiful things to do things that are quite evil and dastardly. Well, all that to say, I want you to see that. That's why I kind of go into that. I want you to see that here in this chapter because that's exactly what he does. And by the way, historically, if you read extra biblical literature, there's even more on the way the Babylonians did this. Uh, and it's, it's quite, you know, psychological the way they did it. So, um, you know, uh, he pokes out the eyes of Zedekiah, uh, verse seven. And we we looked at that, by the way, verses one through seven on Sunday and uh, looked about how the the word of God, it's it's as good as done. Uh, You bank on it. Verse eight. And the Chaldeans burned the king's house and the houses of the people with fire and break down the walls of Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive into Babylon the remnant of the people that remained in the city. And those that fell away, that fell to him with the rest of the people that remained. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left of the poor people of the people which had nothing in the land of Judah and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. So it'd be like, let's just say, um, you know, she of China, they came and attacked the United States and took Oregon and killed most of us, and took some of us to Beijing. But then go to downtown Portland and get all the people in the tents there in town and, and all the places where the homeless are and they get them out and say, you know, Lake Oswego, all these houses around the lake, these are your new houses. You can live there. And, and we are supportive of this. Just all you gotta do is pay taxes to us and you're, you're, you're pretty much Babylonians now. Congratulations, Babylonians, welcome to Babylonia. Uh, but you can live in these houses. This is your vineyard now. This is your house. That's the way they did it. They got the homeless people and the poor people, killed all the other people or took them off into captivity. Uh, by the way, do you remember Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah's prophecy about this? He, he told the people, don't fight them, but surrender. Some of the people who surrendered, 
if they did, like Jeremiah said, they lived, but they were taken off to Babylon for 70 years. So verses one through 10 is what happened to the people in Jerusalem. That's, that's the deal. Verse 11 uh, through 14 is what happened to Jeremiah. Let's see. Now, verse 11, Nebu, uh, Nebuchadrezzar, um, uh, by the way, um, the reason I read it like that is I want you to see that there's two different spellings and there's debate on why they spell it differently and um, nobody really knows. Uh, and it has to do with maybe it's the way the Jews pronounced it versus the way the Babylonians or the Chaldeans pronounced it. Nebuchadnezzar or Nebuchadrezzar, uh, it's, it's up in the air. But same guy, don't be confused. Verse 11, now Nebuchadrezzar, as I said there, king of Babylon gave charge concerning Jeremiah to Nebuchadnezzar Adon, the captain of the guard saying, take him and look well to him and do him no harm, but do unto him even as he shall say unto thee. Question, why would, you know, Nebuchadnezzar um, give the command to be nice to Jeremiah? That's a great question if you think about it. Like, you know, and I think the answer could be any number of things, but the first thing we know is God was protecting Jeremiah. Don't you know that? Um, that's the first thing we know is God, God's gonna put a protection on it. So already out of the gate, Nebuchadnezzar says, see this guy here? Do you remember where would they have found Jeremiah? in the prison court there, not in the dungeon. Remember, they moved him out of the dungeon, but they left him in the, the, the court of the prison there. And no doubt he was looking very skeletal and wearing raggedy clothes and looking like one of the poorer homeless people. So maybe just that's part of the reason this guy, oh, he looks worse than everybody else. Let's be nice to him and do whatever he asks you to do. Uh, but I see that being the Lord protecting Jeremiah. All things work together for good for those who are called, those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, Jeremiah, this works out for him because the Lord is watching out for him. So this captain of the guard is told, do what he tells you to do. Um, so verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard sent, uh, and Nebuchadnezzar, Rab, uh, Rab Saris, and Nirgel Sherezer, Rabbag and all the king of Babylon's princes, even they sent and took Jeremiah out of the court of the prison and committed him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should carry him home so he dwelt among the people. Now this is interesting because you guys remember Gedaliah in our previous stories. Why wasn't he slain? Because he was one of those guys that was sort of in a role of leadership in Jerusalem. Um, we don't know why he survives, but somehow he does survive. And not only that, uh, he survives and, and he's put in a position of, um, of authority. So, so the, the tiny remnant of Jews that are gonna be left in Jerusalem are gonna be under Gedaliah's um, care. But we're gonna have to realize that Gedaliah needs to get a life <laughs> Gedaliah is a fool and he's, he's a loser. We're gonna see that. Um, and uh, we gotta watch out for this guy and see what happens. But so basically Jeremiah is left uh, there in the care of, uh, Jeremiah is uh, left in Gedaliah's care. Now, before we leave chapter four, uh, 39 and get to 40, we see what happens to finally Eved Melech. And if you recall, he's the Ethiopian guy that spoke up on behalf of Jeremiah and saved his life really. Um, and um, they were gonna kill him, but this guy stands up for him. And so, 
This is what we sort of read last Wednesday night as a sneak preview. It says in verse 15, now the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the prison saying, go and speak to Abed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring my words upon this city for evil and not for good. And they shall be accomplished in that day before thee. But I will deliver thee in that day, saith the Lord, and thou shalt not be given into the hand of the men of whom thou art afraid. For I will surely deliver thee and thou shalt not fall by the sword, but thy life shall be for a prey unto thee because thou hast put thy trust in me, saith the Lord. I love this Ethiopian guy who the reason he gets spared is because he put his trust in the Lord. Even when he knew his life would have been on the line trying to defend Jeremiah, when they wanted to kill him, Jeremiah, this you know, Ethiopian guy, didn't look like the Jews, wasn't from the same towns as the Jew, a whole different people. Uh, he comes to defending Jeremiah, says, please spare his life, save him. And so because of that, Jeremiah was spared. And so the Lord says, because you trusted in me, that's what we learn about him is he was one who trusted the Lord and he was an Ethiopian guy. And so the Lord blesses him. No doubt, Eved Melech was one of those guys that were given somebody's house and a vineyard and got to live you know, in that region. Well, um, so you say, okay, Brett, I get it. So they left some of the homeless people and they, there's just a tiny, tiny remnant of Jews around that region. Um, but didn't the Lord say he was gonna kind of wipe out really all the people there? And it seems like there's a remnant left and especially, you know, Gedaliah. Why is Gedaliah, why is he around? And why is he in charge? This doesn't really fit the Lord's narrative, especially with Gedaliah. If you read about who he was before, why, why is this guy in charge? And what's, is this really the perfect fulfillment? I wonder if some of these people thought, wow, Jeremiah was right about most of that, but we went through Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar likes us. And he gave us Lake Oswego. And we're living in these nice houses and we got our vineyards and everything's great. And, and Gedaliah's like, I'm in charge. I'm the new ruler in this area. Yeah, I submit to the Babylonians, but still I'm alive. I got away with it. See, even these guys might think they got away with it, but the Lord is gonna allow something to happen that kind of seals the deal. Check it out, chapter 40. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. After that, Nebuzar Adam, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah when he had taken him, being bound in chains among all that were carried away captive of Jerusalem and Judah, which were carried away captive unto Babylon's. And the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said unto him, the Lord thy God hath pronounced this evil upon this place. Now the Lord hath brought it and done according as he hath said, because you have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed his voice. Therefore, this thing has come upon you. I wonder what Jeremiah said at that, did he say anything or did he just look, like, did he say, no duh? Like, uh, good eye. Like, 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 here's Jeremiah has been preaching this for 40 years and this, this, this ruler of the guard, captain of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar had to say, he looks at Jeremiah in the face, do you know why this has happened to you? Because you guys have rebelled against your God and you know, like telling Jeremiah what he knows already. Don't, isn't that kind of frustrating when people sanctimoniously tell you stuff that you already know? But it doesn't say that Jeremiah retorted back or said anything back. I wonder if Jeremiah said, yep, you're right. And how did this Babylonian know this? How did this Babylonian captain of the guard know that it's true because the Lord has brought it done according as he said? How did the Babylonian know what the Lord had said? And why is he telling Jeremiah this? This is really kind of a mysterious thing that the Babylonian leader has more sense than most of the people in Jerusalem, it seems. 
And then he's chiding against Jeremiah as if Jeremiah didn't know why this all happened. But the rest of it starts to say, well, this guy, he remember he, told, he was told by Nebuchadnezzar, let this guy do what he wants to do. Jeremiah can do whatever he wants to do. So he says, verse four, and now behold, I loose thee this day from the chains which were upon thine hand. If it seem good unto thee, come with me to Babylon, come, and I will look well unto thee. But if it seem ill to thee to come with me to Babylon, forbear, behold, all the land is before thee, whether it seem good and convenient for you to go, thither go. This guy, you know, they're marching everybody off to Babylon and as they start leaving Jerusalem, they walk up to Jeremiah and he's in chains like everybody else. And the guy says, okay, I'm unchaining you. Now, you can willingly go with me, I'll take good care of you. You'll be a Babylonian, man. And we'll, you'll live large. Don't you know the captain of the guard of, of Nebuchadnezzar's army was probably one of the wealthiest guys in all of Babylon? And now Jeremiah's got this, this little carrot dangling in front of him. Go and be a Babylonian and live large. But, um, or you can stay here. And, uh, and uh, what do you think Jeremiah's gonna do? Some of you read ahead. <laughs> well, it says verse five. Now, while he was not yet gone back, he said, go back also to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, um, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon hath made governor over the cities of Judah and dwell with him among the people or go wherever it seems convenient to you to go. So the captain of the guard gave him victuals and a reward and let him go, some food and money. Then went Jeremiah to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam to Mitzpah and dwelt with him among the people that were left in the land. Why would Jeremiah go to Gedaliah? If you remember Gedaliah in the previous stories, he's not really the guy you wanna hang with, but now he's the guy in charge. Why would Jeremiah do this? I believe it's possible that Jeremiah was committed to his cause, that he was a prophet of the Jews and he had the job to do and it wasn't done. And we'll see how Jeremiah's words would not be completed here. He's still got more work to do. So this Gedaliah guy's in charge. Jeremiah says, okay, reporting for prophetic duty again. I wonder if Gedaliah's like, oh boy, here's Jeremiah, Mr. Weeping Prophet. Can't we find somebody with a more of a positive mental outlook? I don't know, I'm reading into it, but, but Jeremiah is now hanging with Gedaliah. What an interesting deal. Well, verse seven. Now, when all the captains of the forces which were in the fields, even they, when their men heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, governor in the land, that he had committed unto him men and women and children and of the poor of the land, of them that were not carried away captive to Babylon. Then they came to Gedaliah to Mitzpah, even Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah and Johanan and Jonathan, the sons of Korea and Sariah, the son of Tanumet, uh, the sons of Ephi and Nef, uh, the, the, Ephi, who was the Netophathite, and Jezaniah, the son of a Maacathite, and they and their men. And so verse nine, Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, swear unto them and to their men saying, fear not to serve the Chaldeans, dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon and it shall be well with you. Um, as for me, behold, I will dwell at Mitzpah to serve the Chaldeans, which will come unto us, but you gather ye wine, summer fruits and oil, put them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you have taken. Likewise, when all the Jews that were in Moab among the Ammonites and in Edom that were in all the countries heard that the king of Babylon had left the remnant of Judah 
and that he had set them over, set over them, Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, even all the Jews returned out of all places, whether they were driven and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah unto Mitzpah and gathered wine and the summer fruits very much. Well, Brett, this sounds like a really happy ending. They're all having their fruit and wine and cheese and they're in the land and it's just a little population control. That's all that happened. Uh, all the rich people were killed and, and now it's just the one percenters and Antifa is left behind. It's all great. <laughs> they're drinking their wine and they got their cheese. It's great. It seems like they are the ones that are the exception to God's destruction of the Jews in Jerusalem on that time. Um, but notice there's something going on here. There's a guy named Ishmael coming. Now, Ishmael is an interesting name. Uh, if you're a Bible student, Ishmael is always synonymous with the flesh or the works of the flesh. Because if you remember the very first Ishmael, this is not the same Ishmael of Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael. The, the two sons of Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac would be the father of the Jews, Ishmael would be the father of the Arabs, and the Jews and the Arabs have not got along since Ishmael and Isaac, uh, sibling rivalry. This Ishmael is centuries later and he's from the region around Moab. And, and here's what's kind of going on, if you can picture the scene. Um, when the Babylonians came, you know, Jerusalem was crushed. There were Jews that scattered uh, miles and miles away and other people uh, groups like the Moabites and the, and the region uh, east of the Jordan River. And they were sort of scattered. Once they heard word that Nebuchadnezzar let some Jews live and put Gedaliah, the safest move they could make perhaps would be to go from wherever they were and go back to Jerusalem and be a part of that group that's accepted by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. That would, that'd be a safe move. So a lot of people do that. Well, this one guy brings his posse uh, who's uh, right here in verse eight. Uh, I got this list of fancy names, but Ishmael's kind of the leader of this group. Um, and he's there, uh, but, but there's something suspicious about this group. So, Somebody's gonna give Gedaliah a word of caution about this people group that's kind of moved back in under Gedaliah's rule, who was under the Babylonian rule. Gedaliah said, you can live here and be safe, have your wine and cheese, as long as you surrender the Babylonians, but are under my leadership. That's kind of the way Gedaliah handled this. Well, it goes on in verse 13. Moreover, Johanan, uh, his name, by the way, means Jehovah has graced. Johanan, the son of Korea and all the captains of the forces that were in the fields came to Gedaliah at Mitzvah and said unto him, dost thou certainly know that Baalus, the king of the Amorites, have sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to slay thee? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, believed them not. This guy comes and uh, Johanan, he says, don't you understand what's going on here? The Ammonites, the Moabites, Ammonites, um, you know, that was a people group there. The Ammonites pretty much said, um, we're gonna sneak in and kind of send some spies over. At least that's what Johanna's saying, uh, Johanan. And, and, and Gedaliah says, yeah, whatever. And I don't believe you. Well, that's gonna prove to be fatal. He doesn't listen to wise counsel. So he believes them not. Um, this, this interesting, why is Ishmael the name linked to the works of the flesh? Well, remember, Ishmael was a result of the work of Abraham's flesh. The book of Hebrew talks about casting out the bondwoman and her son, which is Ishmael, which are types of the flesh, the works of our flesh, you know, things that are results of what we do, not what God is doing. 
Um, so there's kind of an interesting parallel here. Here's this work of the flesh showing up, if you would. And it follows the biblical narrative all, uh, all the way through the Bible. This idea of Ishmael being a work of the flesh. You can kind of make some connections here as we read this. So this guy Ishmael, he, we don't know for sure, but Johanan says he's bad news and he wants to kill Gedalitha. Well, verse 15. Then Johanan, the son of Korea, spake to Gedaliah at Mitzvah secretly saying, let me go, I pray thee, and I will slay Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and no man shall know, know it. Wherefore should he slay you, that all the Jews which are gathered unto thee should be scattered and the remnant uh, in Judah perish. But Gedaliah said unto Ahikam, the son of Ahikam, and said unto Johanan, the son of Korea, thou shalt not do this thing, for thou speakest falsely of Ishmael. So some reason Gedaliah liked Ishmael, said, yeah, you're wrong. He's a good dude. Well, chapter 41, now it came to pass in the seventh um, month that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, of the seed royal and the princes of the king, even 10 men with them came to, to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, to, to Mitzvah. And there they did eat bread together at Mitzvah. Man, I love this dude, Ishmael, let's have dinner. Um, the flesh always wants to coexist with the spirit, by the way, and hang out, be comfortable with that. Then verse two, then arose Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the 10 men that were with him, and they smote Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, with a sword, and slew him, whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land. Ishmael also slew all the Jews that were with him, even with Gedaliah at Mizpah, and the Chaldeans that were found there and the men of war. So not only did he kill the Jews, but the Chaldeans that were there sort of as occupied soldiers, just making sure Gedaliah was being cool, killed them all. The Babylonians and the Jews, um, these, this guy Ishmael and his, his team of 10 soldiers did all kinds of damage. Verse four, and it came to pass the second day after he had slain Gedaliah and no man knew it. So that, like it was a secret op that nobody even knew it happened. Then there came certain from Shechem, from Shiloh, and from Samaria, even fourscore men having their beards shaven and their clothes rent and having cut themselves with offerings and incense in their hand to bring them to the house of the Lord. And Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, went forth from Mitzvah to meet them, weeping um, all along as he went. And it came to pass, as he met them, he said to them, come to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, and it was so when they came into the midst of the city that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, slew them and cast them into the midst of the pit, he and the men that were with them. But the, the 10 men were found among them that, were, that, that said unto Ishmael, slay us not, for we have treasures in a field of wheat and barley and of oil and of honey. So he forbear and slew them not according to their brethren. This guy Ishmael is just going around looking for people to kill. He killed a bunch of Babylonian, you know, occupied soldiers that were there to make sure that they were still good Babylonian citizens. They're dead. Gedaliah and his crew, dead. Then they get these men that have done these weird things. Who are these men with half-shaved beards and cutting themselves? Well, they were going to the temple to worship the Lord. But you say, but Brett, this, you know, as a Bible student, these guys don't look like good Jews doing good Jewish things. Are they supposed to be cutting their bodies? Who was it that cut their bodies in acts of worship? It'd be the prophets of Baal and pagans would slice and dice their arms and their legs. By the way, cutting is a real thing even today that I think is very demonic. It's devilish, it comes from the pit. 
um, the, the, you know, the destroying of your body. The, what, don't you know? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I think Satan has an agenda to want to hurt your body and destroy your body. Um, this cutting thing that we see a lot of young people do, and it's an, a, a, quite a, a, a troublesome thing. And it happens all the time. These men had adopted sort of Judaistic practices coupled with pagan practices of the, you know, the shaving of their beards and the cutting of their body. In Leviticus, you know, 22 and, and 19, it talks about, you know, these, the, the law of Moses said, don't cut the corners of your beard and don't cut, the, cut in mark in your flesh. Um, and that, that was what these guys were doing. So they were, they were kind of off course anyway, trying to do something half Jewish, half pagan. And uh, Ishmael comes along and says, weeping. Oh, yeah, we'll take you to get a light, even though we killed him last night, but we'll take you to go visit. And he's weeping with them, playing the game with them. And as they go along, he slays them all and throws them into pit. What's the pit <clears throat> that he threw them in? Um, verse, uh, verse nine, it says, now the pit they're in where Ishmael had cast all the dead bodies of the men whom he had slain because of Gedaliah was, uh, it was which Asaph, the king had made for fear of Baasha, king of Israel, and Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, filled it with them that were slain. Then Ishmael carried away captive all the residue of the people that were at Mitzpah, even the king's daughters, and all the people that remained in Mitzpah, whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had committed to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, and Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, carried them away captive and departed to go to the Ammonites." What's this story about? Some, you know, Ammonite that came and secretively acted like he was a friend of Gedaliah, but kills pretty much everybody. But the people that he doesn't kill, he takes them off into captivity himself. Um, and by the way, so you say, well, Brett, there's still a tiny remnant now. It's the Ammonites in, in captivity. Well, they're about to die too. Um, the reason I point this out is because when God says it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. Gedaliah thought, this is great. We're having our cheese and our wine and we're, we somehow got, we're the exception to the rule. Answer, no, you're not. Um, and God allowed this to happen because it's what he promised would happen. The only people that are left are the ones that Ishmael took to Ammon to go off with him into captivity. But verse 11, when Johanan, he was the guy that tried to warn Gedalipha. Uh, verse 11, when Johanan, the son of Kerah and all the captains of the forces that were with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael, the, the son of Nethaniah had done, they took, then they took all the men and went to fight with Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and found him by the great waters that are in Gibeon. Now it came to pass when all the people which were with Ishmael saw Johanan, the sons of Kerea, and all the captains of the forces that were with them, then they were glad. Who was glad? The Jews that were taken captive by Ishmael. Who do you think was among those people? Probably Jeremiah. But the people were glad to see Johanan. Oh man, maybe he's gonna rescue us. I wonder if Jeremiah was going, oh, phew, thank you, Lord, for bringing Johanan to save us from this Ishmael dude. I wonder if, you know, if Ed Melech was a part of this group, who knows? Uh, but we do know Jeremiah was here because of the story kind of fills that in. So they were glad, verse 14. So all the people that Ishmael had carried away captive from Mitzpah cast about and returned and went to Johanan, the son of Korea. But Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, escaped from Johanan with eight men and went to the Amorites. 
Then took Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains and forces that were with them, and all the remnant of the people whom he had recovered from Ishmael, the sons of Nethaniah and Mitzpah. After that, he had slain Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, even mighty men of war, and the women, and the children, and the eunuchs, whom he had brought again from Gibeon. Now here's where it shows kind of where they start going. Verse 17, and they departed and dwelt in the habitation of Chimham, which is by Bethlehem. Go to enter, uh, they went to go to enter Egypt because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them. Because Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had slain Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon made governor of the land. Do you see the predicament they're in? So if Babylon comes back and Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar and, and these you know, commander of the guard, if they all show up and say, okay, where's Gedaliah? Uh, he's dead. Where's his cabinet? They're all dead. Who did it? Some dude from Ammon and he's gone. Uh, and you're wanting me to believe that this happened? Like, you know, like they were totally freaked out. The narrative was gonna be too hard to believe. Uh, they were afraid that the Babylonians, when they realized that th there was a revolt and the Babylonian soldiers were killed, remember? Uh, you know, uh, Ishmael killed the soldiers too. When Babylon finds this out, they're gonna come and want blood from the remaining remnant and probably kill them all. That, that, that's pretty typical of that situation. Once there'd be some kind of an uprising, the Babylonians would just finally crush it. So they decide we gotta go down to Egypt because they're the only place safe from the Babylonians. So they wrote, go down to Egypt and next week. We'll see how going down to Egypt works out for them. But Jeremiah is with these people and he's gonna go down there too. We'll see how that shakes out. <clears throat> for you Bible type, people, typologists, studying these types of the Bible. I told you <clears throat> Ishmael is a type of the flesh. What is Egypt a type of, anybody? The world, worldliness, godlessness. Um, that's, what, that's what it is. Um, and so we're gonna kind of see uh, how that works out going down. Whenever somebody was in trouble and they went down to Egypt, it didn't work out so good. Um, can anybody think of someone who was in kind of trouble so they went down to Egypt? We could talk about Abraham who told the people that Sarah was his sister and she almost got put in the harem. Well, she was put in the harem of Pharaoh and God protected her, but that was a bad move. Ishmael did the same thing. Joseph and Jacob, they all went down to Egypt during the famine before the Jews were even a mighty nation, but they became slaves for 450 years. Going down to Egypt is a place where you become enslaved, a place of real danger and peril. And that's true for the Christian as well. If you're a Christian and you think, man, I'm in trouble, so you turn to the world and worldliness, bad choice. We're gonna see how that shakes out here next week. Uh, so may we have ears to hear what the Spirit would say to the church in Jesus' name. Let's pray together. And so, Lord, tonight, as we have taken time to look at this passage, um, Lord, we re we're reminded of just these simple truths of your word, of what, uh, of just simple things like your word, when, it, when you say something's gonna happen, it completely happens, even though it may not seem like it's gonna happen, though, though, but Lord, your word is right every single time. Uh, I pray that we trust in your word, every single scripture, knowing that your word is infallible, without error, and it's the inspired word from you to us. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help us during times of difficulty to put our trust in you and not trust in the world and worldliness. 
Um, bless these your people, Lord, tonight who have gone through this passage, whether they're at home, online, or here in the room. Lord, I pray that you just really um, cause this, this scripture, even though it's hard to sort of correlate with today in some ways, in other ways, Lord, we see uh, the days we're living are very much like Jeremiah's day. Help us to be like Jeremiah, unwavering, faithful to you, faithful to your word, no matter how bad things get here and now. Lord, may we walk with you every day, stronger than ever, in Jesus' name, amen.